When you think of Mika Hakkinen's rivalry with Michael Schumacher, one moment probably stands out. The sight of the two fastest men in F1 at the time going either side of the white BAR of Ricardo Zonta as Hakkinen snatched victory at Spa in 2000 from Schumacher's grasp. Today on Bring Back V10s, we're looking back at that whole Belgian Grand Prix weekend in great detail, and I'm delighted and honoured to say that later in this episode, Mika himself will be joining us to describe the race from his perspective in great detail. Until then, you're stuck with me, Glenn Freeman, and of course, Ed Straw. Ed, welcome along to our lonely beginning to the show, and the traditional question, therefore, is all yours to kick the episode off. So quite simply, Spa 2000, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I've got to quickly say that I'm sure you're honoured to have me on as well. You left that out, so I just thought I'd uh, I'd add it in. But yeah, It goes about saying. <laughs> but it, it is. It's predictable. It is the Hakkinen overtaking. And actually, what happened after the race almost even sticks in my mind more. But I think probably from the time, the thing that really engulfed it was this greatest overtaking manoeuvre that was sort of suddenly foisted upon everyone at the time. It's kind of a thing we're used to now, the kind of, oh, this is the greatest sort of snap reactions. But it was actually a bit more unusual back then. And it's it's rare for something instantly to go into the, the pantheon of legend, literally, as it happens. Sometimes it takes a bit more distant. But yeah, what a, what a race it was. That overtake still not as good as Villeneuve going around the outside of Schumacher at Estoril in 96. But we won't tell Mika that when he turns up later. And we'll hear a lot more about Hakkinen's perspective on that uh, battle and the overtake when he comes in. But before then, we'll get into some of the other topics that were worth talking about in F1 around this time. And before we do that, remember to get your questions in for our series finale, where you can ask us anything about F1 from 1989 to 2005. Use the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, and they'll go straight into a feed that I'm checking on a regular basis. And if you're enjoying the show and want to show us some support, feel free to leave us a five-star review and you can join likes of F1 Pro Blog, Barry and X24 Rider as some of those who have left us a review recently. We appreciate them all and thanks to all of you who have also submitted a question in your review as well. Those are going on to the list. But let's get back to Spa. We're heading into the weekend and the big story was the crisis talks at Ferrari. Over the course of the last four races, Michael Schumacher has retired from three and finished second to Hakkinen in the other. So a 22-point lead in the championship is now a two-point deficit heading to Spa. And David Coulthard, who has won three races, is only four behind Schumacher. So McLaren potentially has two cards to play in this title fight. The reports are of crisis meetings at Maranello for Ferrari to try and turn its season around and during this time, Michael Schumacher gave a rare interview to Swiss newspaper Sontag's Blick. Schumacher describes Ferrari's situation as very serious, and he says the team has had to work hard with the car in all areas, aerodynamics, engine and chassis. But he tries to remain upbeat, saying, We're only two points behind. I would not say the championship has turned around. I would rather say McLaren has made the score even. Obviously, we cannot be happy at losing our advantage, but we are doing our utmost. Sometimes you think it could go wrong another time, but if I can say that in the end I have done everything I can to win it, I can live with defeat. So Ed, Ferrari, of course, in 2000, came out the blocks firing on all cylinders. Schumacher won the first three races and it looked like it was finally all coming together. But then McLaren launched this fight back. So once Hakkinen took the points lead with his victory in Hungary, was this suddenly another McLaren title to lose? 
Well, if you're going to pick a favourite, don't pick the one that's having the crisis meetings. And we have to remember as well that this wasn't yet the Ferrari that we know in retrospect, isn't it? Yeah, they'd won the Constructors' title the year before. And given how close Eddie Irvine came, surely Michael Schumacher would have won the, the Drivers' title had he not been injured. But the storyline was of Ferrari consistently falling short still. McLaren, of course, had been hugely successful. So yeah, Hacken had built the momentum. And the fact they were having crisis meetings, they'd had reliability problems, etc., shows that they were a little bit under the cosh and just struggling to string everything together. And clearly it did have an impact because, spar aside, Ferrari did pick up quite well. But it felt like it was going a little bit like the previous year, actually, where McLaren had started a little bit slowly, or at least slowly in terms of the points they were scoring, if not uh, the actual pace of the car when it was working. And it felt like it was kind of a repeat of that that same story. So, yeah, I think at the time, you just said it, it was going Hakkinen's way. He'd taken the lead and every chance he'd continue to extend. Yeah, and actually, when we talked about Austria 2002 and the controversial team orders they employed at the end of that race earlier in this series, a lot of the narrative Ferrari pushed at the time was looking back at 2000 and how this this points lead evaporated for Schumacher. So they clearly, they clearly were affected by what went on in the summer of 2000. There's lots going on in the driver market at this time of year, of course, and the big story ahead of Spa was Jensen Button moving from Williams to Benetton. Jensen's going now on a two-year deal, with Williams having Button under a longer-term contract, which means it has the option to take him back for 2003, which we discussed on our Juan Pablo Montoya 2001 episode recently as well. Some teams, though, at this point were put off by the Williams contract because they obviously wanted Button as an option for a much longer-term deal. Uh, but when Button's management tried to buy him out of the contract with Frank Williams, Frank said not at any price. But Flavio Briatore was more of a pragmatist. He was back in charge of Benetton at this point, and he said, I wasn't worried about that because it was difficult to find the right driver for the next two years. Jensen is with the right team at the right time, and two years is a long time. At the moment, we're just happy to have him. Button then spoke about the move in a column for the Sunday Mirror. And he said, I felt Benetton offered me the best opportunity of what I want above all else to win races. I genuinely believe Benetton will be challenging for victories over the next couple of seasons because I know what it has planned. Benetton at this stage was, of course, getting back together with Renault, which would supply works engines in 2001 and then take the team over for 2002. At this point, Briatore said, we will not be ready to win the championship next year. Races, I do not know. To do that, you need to have a car that is on the first or second row at least 60% of the time. The year we will try to be really competitive and win races regularly is 2002. Obviously, Renault didn't quite hit that target, but the first half of the 2000s went very well uh, for Flavio's team. But Ed, thinking about Button's situation, did this look like a decent move for him at the time? In fairness, Benetton were a bit rubbish in 99 and 2000 with their ageing Mechachrome, Supertech, Playlife, whatever you want to call those engines. But they were basically old Renaults and now Renault were coming back. So did it look like a good move for Jensen? Yeah, definitely. He was leaving a team, not by choice, that was upwardly mobile in Williams. It won titles only a few years before. It was on its way back to being able to win races. And Benetton, actually, with a new ownership coming as well, was in much the same position. They were only one place behind in the Constructors' Championship as well, so it was relatively close to a, to a sideways move. I guess the crucial difference was that while Benetton still had that lag in the system, shall we say, and it would take them longer than Briatore laid out for them to, to get into position to, to win, 
they were still kind of on that little downward slide, whereas Williams had kind of bottomed out and were just starting to come up uh, the other side. And so if you look at it, Button went to the right team, but just a little bit too early. And because of the rise of Alonso, etc., and the various decisions that were made, he wasn't there to benefit from it. So you look back at it and you listen to what was being said about winning races. Well, they got nowhere near. I think it's, well, 2001 was dreadful for Button, really. And 2002, I think his best finish was fourth. So it didn't work out in that regard, but I can't see a better choice. It was a, it was a good move to a good, potentially top-level team. And actually, it set him on that path that did eventually lead to the World Championship, even though it was a ridiculously roundabout one that made no sense. And it allowed him to then make the move to BAR in, in 2003. So especially considering he had that limitation with the underlying Williams contract, and of course the Williams link would come back to cause all sorts of problems down the line for Button in particular, uh, I think it's a very, very good move. I don't think you can look at what happened and say it was wrong just because it didn't work out. It was comfortably the best move that was available to him. Yeah, it's one of the big challenges on bring back V10s, isn't it? Sometimes you have to judge a decision without the benefit of hindsight. And I think with the cards button had to play, that was fair enough. I find it interesting that Flavio said he needed a driver for the next two years. That makes me wonder if he already knew he wanted Fernando Alonso for 2003. But of course, as we've talked about previously, Button was getting moved aside at Williams to make room for Juan Pablo Montoya after two great years in America for the Colombian. And in Button's book, he says, to be fair to Frank, he'd always been upfront about wanting Montoya back right from the beginning of the season. Uh, Jensen says, Frank said, Jensen will need to show us what he can do to keep Juan Pablo out. And that's quite a position for us. So Button says, I always knew it was a possibility, maybe even a likelihood. I was pretty relaxed about the whole thing. I hoped to somehow show Frank that I was worth keeping. Then about halfway through the year, Frank called me saying, Juan Pablo's coming back, Jensen, and he's going to take your seat. Even so, I took a pragmatic approach. I wasn't upset. I wasn't angry. I knew my contract and Frank can do what he wants. He obviously wanted a guy who was more experienced than me to come in and start winning immediately. And he evidently didn't think that I was in that position. Or maybe he had his handshake deal with Juan Pablo and didn't want to go back on it. We won't talk about the Montoya element too much because Jonathan Williams did that for us in brilliant style in the Montoya episode. So go back and check that one out. But uh, as we've also mentioned very recently in our Toyota episode, it was this weekend at Spa that Toyota announced Mikasalo and Alan McNish as the drivers for the beginning of its F1 project. But there was a rumour just before this that Toyota were trying to use their engine links in America to get Montoya to drive for them in F1. So, Ed, we love stopping off at these rumours that didn't go anywhere, particularly when they're driver market ones. How different would the Montoya F1 story look if he'd come in with Toyota rather than Williams? You do wonder if it would all have gone a little bit Cristiano de Matta. And, of course, de Matta came over as kart champion a few years later with Toyota, ended up being booted out after 18 months, never seen again in F1, despite the fact he actually did pretty well, particularly in that, that first season. I can't really see it working for Montoya there, given the level of struggles Toyota had. Maybe the fact he was such an insistent, spectacular talent might have changed that. But even drivers of that calibre need to be in the, the right place. And of course, they'd have had the, uh, the the year driving around testing before they came in as well, which didn't make a great deal of sense. So he could have he could have become a footnote in Formula One if he'd gone down that route. I can see why Toyota wanted him, but yeah, I think that one makes no sense, particularly when you've got Williams seeing you as the long term guy to have a team that 
everyone was expecting them to go on to win championships again. Of course, that never happened, but they did come close. So it, it would have made very, very little sense for Montoya. And I think it would have been something that, that perhaps uh, harpooned his, uh, certainly his F1 career. Maybe he'd have ended up back in the, in the US again uh, far more quickly than he eventually did. Elsewhere in the driver market, Sauber needed to find a replacement for Salo and it went for Nick Heidfeld after he'd turned them down in 2000 in favour of Prost, which was on the advice of McLaren and Mercedes. So not the best advice in the world. Another deal that's done around this time is Olivier Panis moving from his test driver role at McLaren to join Jacques Villeneuve at BAR. And talking of Villeneuve, actually, um, in, in that Schumacher newspaper interview we mentioned earlier, he was Schumacher was asked about Villeneuve and he said this, I cannot see us being friends in this life. It might go back to our crash at Jerez. It was odd since uh, the evening after that race, there was a party and we were having a ball. Days later, his comments did not fit the picture. I would have preferred him to tell me to my face that he was angry. I do detect similarities with Damon Hill. He was the gentleman and I was the devil in England. I think we could have become friends without our job, but with Villeneuve, there is something different. It's interesting that Schumacher mentions the, the Sunday night party at Jerez that we will talk about in, in much more detail in the future because that was actually part of the reason Villeneuve was so annoyed. There's an autosport feature that ran in 2017 where Villeneuve said he had had fun with Schumacher that night and uh, there'd been no talk of the collision during the race and the, the controversial way the championship ended. But then pictures of them together at the party emerged in the German press which made Villeneuve think Schumacher had staged the whole thing to, in Villeneuve's words, clean things up. And that's why Villeneuve was so upset. But Ed, if we think about Villeneuve and Schumacher in 2000, is it a bit strange that this rivalry is still a thing? Because Villeneuve hadn't driven a car that could get anywhere near Schumacher since they'd collided at Jerez. I think that's one of those things that seems more unusual with hindsight, because Villeneuve is still a really big deal in 2000, rather than the, the kind of, of course. <laughs> the slightly pale shadow of the star he once was, who's battling away in Euro NASCAR as he is today. So I think it's understandable people were interested in him and that dynamic with Schumacher. I don't know, maybe Schumacher could view it with a bit more amusement given Villeneuve's struggles with BAR, but it was still a team that was viewed as having the potential to get to the front. Villeneuve, not a factor at right at the front, but he was qualifying in the top 10 almost all the time and picking up plenty of top six finishes, albeit the uh, the less uh, the less glamorous ones, fourth, fifth, sixth places. So he was still on the, the periphery of things. And I guess it just reflects the fact that Villeneuve was still one of the very top Grand Prix drivers who was seen as being in a, in a fallow period at, at that stage, whereas actually now we see it from range as, as part of the, the sort of long decline of his career in terms of the choices he made and where he was where he was racing and, and I'm sure Schumacher knew Villeneuve was someone who was capable of causing him some problems in, in equal machinery in the future even if that that never happened so yeah at that time he's, st he's still one of the big beasts of F1 and he's still certainly box office and getting all those column inches. He'll be box office forever on bring back V10s but let's get to the race weekend Hakkinen takes pole by seven tenths of a second and his closest challengers are, wait for it, Jarno Trulli's Jordan and Jensen Button's Williams. Schumacher is only fourth, nine tenths down on the McLaren and even that is considered a pretty heroic achievement given Barrichello is tenth in the second Ferrari. Trulli and Schumacher both had laps ruined towards the end by Jean Alesi's spun Prost being in the way at the bus stop so Hakkinen believes the gap should have been smaller at the front of the field. But Ed, let's have a quick word about Trilly, 
because this was the second time he'd qualified on the front row in 2000 for Jordan. Was this really the beginning of his reputation as a better qualifier than racer? Yeah, it's certainly starting to build that. Or I think the I think the Trilly Train phenomenon probably wasn't named for uh, for a few years yet. Although I can't remember exactly when it first appeared. But in Yarno's defence, and I will defend him because I've got a lot of time for Yarno Trilly, and I think he's a fascinating driver. While he was often such a remarkable qualifier, that often meant he was out of position in races. You can't outperform the car, but you can get the most out of it. And he was generally pretty good at doing that on Saturday when he was happy with it. And then, of course, you regress to the mean when you get into the race. So we have to factor that in. He wasn't always the most adaptable to the shifting characteristics of the car over a whole stint as fuel loads change, tyre condition changes, etc. And that sometimes contributed to it. But also, if you look at Jordan in 2000, it was a bit of a mess, the team, that year. He had a quick car, but loads of reliability problems, particularly the gearbox. So I think this year was starting to create that impression of Trulli, which I think there's a kernel of truth in it, but I also think it it grossly oversimplifies the whole Yarno Trulli phenomenon. One of the very fastest F1 drivers, not just of his time, but I think there's ever been over a single lap when things are working. And isn't it fascinating when you have drivers like that? You know, someone who's just sort of quite good and drives around at 7 out of 10 all the time, fine. But someone who can have 10 out of 10 days and do these amazing things, I find endlessly fascinating, even if their low points just are, are too low and too regular for them to be title contenders. Yeah, let's not talk about where Trulli ranks in the fastest drivers of all time or we'll end up becoming an AWS algorithm. This was a rare high spot in a disappointing season for Jordan, which, as we talked about in Series 1, fought for the World Championship in 1999 with Heinz-Held Frentzen, but started its decline the following year. Let's go back to Button, though, because third on the grid as a rookie at one of F1's ultimate driver's circuits was a huge moment for Jensen. Speaking in his book, Button says that he was fired up at Spa, fresh from the good news of having his future sorted for 2001. He recalls Frank Williams saying to him, not bad for a schoolboy. And Patrick Head said at the time, Button drives this circuit like Prost used to drive it, which is very high praise. Indeed, Button said the reaction to his lap surprised him as after qualifying, he couldn't get through the paddock without being stopped by people wanting to congratulate him or get an autograph. Whereas before the session, nobody was paying any attention to him. Amusingly, in our Montoya 2001 episode, Mark Hughes tells a story about Gerhard Berger sitting down in front of the media after that qualifying session and saying, I know what you're thinking, I'm thinking it too, regarding Williams's decision to keep Ralph Schumacher instead of Button for 2001. But Ed, how significant was this moment in Button's rookie season? Was this almost the time, the time where he announced himself on the F1 stage? I'm not sure about announced because he'd had some fine moments already. So he'd made a splash, but it did really catch the attention of those who really understood what it said about him. That comment Patrick had made is very significant. You could write that off as just a team boss being positive about their driver but this is Patrick Head right or wrong he says what he thinks and he had no reason to talk up Button given that they decided to get Montoya in very good performance from Button especially in the way he followed the evolving track conditions in qualifying as well did much better than Ralph Schumacher did in in that regard and actually when you look back at it the two things that really stand out from that season are the spa qualifying and his pace through the S's in the first part of the lap at Suzuka another Prost-esque performance those were the things that still get talked about today buttons talked about them in, in interviews i've done with him about what he was able to do that i can't remember whether he raised it or i raised it but it's still a talking point and it's still emblematic of a driver who had a lot about him so yeah i think it i think it showed the great strengths of jensen button and 
we have got a hint of that quality of the, that supreme that supreme ability, that potential to be a world champion down the line. Let's move on to the main event then, the Belgian Grand Prix. It rains all morning and the decision is taken to start the race behind the safety car. This was apparently called for by the drivers, although Button says it was a blow because he'd hoped to use the conditions to his advantage at the start. Now, Ed, as you always do, you've watched this race back recently um, ahead of coming on the episode. By the time this race actually started, it wasn't really that wet was it and after a handful of laps we had cars coming in for slicks as we'll discuss shortly do you think this was the beginning of f1 being over cautious about race starts in the wet and ultimately was that just fueled by what had happened here two years earlier with the famous 1998 pileup yes to all of the above it was the first f1 safety car starts i've got no doubt the 98 crash played a part in that and it did start that trend for starting under the the safety car and then everyone moving on to better tires stupidly quickly so yeah this is absolutely what was going to follow and i'm not a big fan of that happening it's always good for those near the front of the grid those further back don't like it time is over time they've just started to roll back a little bit on this sort of thing happening but yeah i don't really like it and i'm not really sure it was that necessary why not just give them two formation laps to have a good look at it and then let them go but I understand why they had safety concerns, particularly at a circuit like Spa, particularly with what happened the previous year, or two years ago, rather. Yeah. Okay, we'll let them off of that one, but not the sort of 20 years that followed of cautious restarts and starts behind the safety car under the wet. When the race gets going, Hakkinen streaks away, and uh, we do get one of the first Trilly trains behind Yano. Button gets balked behind him, and Schumacher pounces on him for third at the bus stop, and then Schumacher quickly picks off Trilly, at La Source, Button tries to follow Schumacher through, but he just clouts Trulli into a spin and puts him out of the race. Trulli said at the time that Button was too aggressive, and he also says it's a shame to have a collision between two young drivers, but he can understand why it happened. And he claimed that his lack of pace was due to a high fuel load and his rear tyres going off. Quite simply, Ed, was this just clumsy from Button? And actually, in modern F1, would he get a penalty for this? Yeah, well, in modern times, uh, wholly or predominantly to blame, isn't it? And he clearly was. It was one of those stranger ones, though, that I think he got kind of sucked into through inexperience. It was actually in a bit of the race where his inexperience was really showing because he'd already left the way clear for Schumacher to, to pass him while he was trying to get past Trilly, uh, coming up towards the, the bus stop chicane. And then this happened, and it, it was like he almost accidentally ended up in that move because Trulli had to really hesitate mid-corner because Schumacher was going through and make space and Button was kind of doing his thing and I almost feel like he suddenly ended up in this overtaking manoeuvre he almost didn't want to be in so I think if if Saturday at Spa showed the the raw brilliance Sunday showed off that same thing in in a in another way but ultimately he did survive and he did finish fifth in the race which was uh, which was pretty good but yeah I think that's just a bit of naivety showing on his part it's the kind of thing you often see actually in lower formulas junior formulas even to this day when when a driver's dealing with one car, they're all right. But when there's two cars he's interacting with who have an Im- impact on each other, sometimes the judgment isn't quite there to factor it all in. I think I think the opportunity kind of arose by accident because of the impact Schumacher doing what he was doing perfectly legitimately had on what, what Trilly did. And then suddenly there was Trilly facing the wrong way and Button thinking mm, that probably wasn't ideal. Jensen said he was disappointed, believing that he probably let a first podium finish slip through his fingers that day. And of course, he could have no idea he'd have to wait until 2004 to put that right. 
The track is drying rapidly at this point, so perhaps it should come as no surprise that Jean Alesi is the first driver to pit for slicks on lap four. But while we're on the subject of Alesi in a prost, let's revisit something that was in the news with that team during that weekend. Prost was having a horrible season in 2000. They'd end up failing to score a point all season. And this was the last year of the team's dreadful three-year stint with Peugeot. And it's already known by this stage that they will have customer Ferrari engines for 2001. Those engines don't come cheaply though, and Pedro Diniz is rumoured to be in the running for a drive to help pay some of those bills. We know that deal didn't come together, and the massive Ferrari engine bill, which Prost has since said was $28 million in the first year, was one of the key reasons for the team folding after 2001. But in the back end of 2000, things were not good between Prost and Peugeot. Prost said in public at the time that getting together with Peugeot was one of his biggest errors as a team boss. He calls Peugeot a company that is very political. I've just had the worst period of my life. I felt alone. Now, unsurprisingly, Prost's book released in conjunction with McLaren doesn't devote too much time to his stint as a team owner. But in that on Peugeot, he says the relationship with Peugeot was never good because they didn't want to put in any money. Ed, we've talked, and especially you've talked to Gary Anderson about this on his own podcast, the Gary Anderson F1 show, that the Peugeot engine by the mid-90s was coming on and was, was quite a good engine when Jordan had it. But by the time Prost had it, was it just an engine that was no longer getting any development and was falling off the pace? Yeah, that Peugeot commitment was wavering, wasn't it? Probably their engine was at its best, kind of 97, probably 98 time as well. And in fact, Gary has said on, on the podcast that when they switched to the Mugen Hondas that they won with in 98, they were down on power by a reasonable chunk compared to the Peugeots. And with a with a fair win, the Peugeot engine could have won a race or two in 97 in the Jordan. So yeah, I think Peugeot came into Formula One originally off the back of all that Group C success. I think they thought it would all work really well. Eventually, they went down this Prost line and it was kind of French super team. Oh yeah, we'll get all the French companies to pour money in and the good times will roll. Alain Prost all going to go well and of course as these sort of French super team ideas that regularly flare up it, it didn't really come off the the money wasn't quite there and Peugeot just lost interest so it, it was it was a really hard time for that whole team actually because it, it started with some encouragement with the Bridgestones and its first year running as, uh, as Prost in 97 but even with good drivers they were just going nowhere and yeah having to take then a customer engine deal taking Peugeot Deniz who People always say, well, good for a pay driver. And it's like, well, he wasn't that good a Formula One driver, but he was perfectly competent and, you know, he could score the odd point here or there. But that just tells you that the whole ambition and the wind is out of the sails of that team. And yeah, where it was not long after uh, what happened here tells you everything you need to know about the trajectory of, of it. And perhaps that explains why Peugeot was right to get out of Formula One anyway. Or perhaps Peugeot was the cause of that. Who knows? Okay, before we go any further looking at how this race played out, let's bring in a very special guest. The first Formula One world champion to join us on Bring Back V10s, none other than Mika Hakkinen. Mika, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. This is really, really fantastic. And of course, I'm looking forward to talk about V10 engines because I had a brilliant experience of that and 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 I had a I had a good fun and 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 of course it's been since quite a few years of course when I retired in Formula One and and since then I've been focusing different businesses investing different companies uh, 
is it the healthcare, is it the tourism, uh, all kind of tough things I've been investing in the past and even today. Also, many different companies, I'm doing a different type of marketing work. Uh, one of the great companies are McLaren, who I doing when I'm back with them again after, after years when I was spending with Mercedes. Uh, now, last few years, I've been together with McLaren and it's been a fantastic time to see them developing and getting stronger and stronger in the results of the races. And of course, not forgetting automotive, how they're developing and doing a great uh, supercars on the market. So those things are activating, activating my life in terms of business world. Challenging, of course, today is because all this coronavirus thing is what's going on. So there's not so many public appearances. So most of these things happening virtually with the Zoom. Uh, and and uh, I found it also very exciting uh, to do that because uh, you reach still a huge number of the people other side of the world. And, and you, can, you can really make them to feel what I felt when I was racing Formula One many years ago. Yeah, that is, it's, an, it's an incredible time. And I believe you have your own podcast as well. Is that true? Well, I have many things. I have many things, of course. But uh, at the moment, guys, I'm looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about some V10s. Let's talk about engines screaming up the hill at Spa. Now, Ed and I have already discussed um, some of the early part of the weekend and the start of the race. But one of the key things from the start of the race, of course, was that the start was behind the safety car, even though it wasn't that wet by then. But you were on pole position. Did you want the race to start behind the safety car, even though the conditions weren't too bad? Yeah, it, it is. Uh, when, when you started behind the safety car and you're in a pole position, you do have a mega advantage. So it is a quite a luxury situation. It it's really gives you the opportunity to uh, keep your competitors behind and, and to play some tricks before you pass the start-finish line to able to keep your lead. So it is actually, I, I, I one sense I prefer that. Uh, standing starts, there's so many different risk elements. What can go wrong? Uh, and, and that would give the opportunity for your competitors attack and and that way you can lose your lose your uh, uh, position on a, on a, on a racetrack so this kind of flying start behind the safety car it, it is quite easy it, it's quite cool for the spectators maybe not uh, but that time for the safety reasons I think the organizers decide to do this kind of this kind of thing and and it was it was okay and it wasn't long before we had uh, in early in the race we had John Lacy lighting up the timing screens after he made the early switch to slicks as he so often did and two laps after that most of the race leaders came in to switch to dry tires but the McLaren drivers didn't which was okay for you Mika because you'd built up a lead at the front so you had the time to wait you came in a lap after everybody else but McLaren left David Coulthard out for another lap, which kind of ruined DC's race. He was only six points behind you, Mika, in the championship at that point. But after doing that extra lap, he rejoined ninth and he was half a minute down on you and stuck behind Frentzen's Jordan. And after the race, David said he was reluctant to criticise anyone in public 
And he said that he's part of the process on when to pit, but he relies on information that comes to the team or from the team. He also points out that with a bit of hindsight, both cars could have come in at the same time, but it didn't look like there was a big enough gap. And Coulthard was already 17 seconds behind Mika at that point, so there was enough room to stack the cars, which is what Ferrari did. Mika, can you remember why McLaren was slower to bring their cars in to change onto slick tyres than the other teams? In your case, were you just being cautious because you were in the lead and you had a gap? Uh, the teams, they do have their calculations. They have their reasons why they normally do that. It's not the situation where the team is having some kind of argument uh, between the engineers that way, shall we stop him now or the next lap? Hey guys, what do you think? You know, it's not the, it, 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 it has been discussed before uh, and normally teams, they, they do have their reasons why they do that. But unfortunately, I, I cannot explain here exactly the logic uh, to do something what happened to David example, that way he lost lost a, a race completely uh, because of that let's call it this way uh, so I cannot I cannot call the details with that so Ed what did you make of this strategy particularly with with Coulthard obviously Mika had priority uh, in the team strategy because he was ahead but if Mika was being cautious or if the team were being cautious with Mika's lead because he had the gap, Surely there was an opportunity to bring Coulthard in earlier rather than punish him by bringing him in later. Yeah, normally, I think with hindsight, you'd ideally, if you're leaving one car out a little bit longer to be conservative, you'd probably separate them just to make it easy. So perhaps in hindsight, they, they'd have done that. The, the stacking is difficult because I don't think teams practised it quite as much in those days. Fast pit entry as well at Spa because it was the old bus stop then, so... That 17 seconds sounds very big, but when you remember that fast entry, also the fact that it's quite a cramped pit lane as well, long pit stops for refueling. So that gap today sounds like a enormous, no problem, and it wouldn't be a problem. But in those days, I can kind of understand why they didn't want to do it. And you've got to sort the uh, you've got to sort the tyres out, and obviously you've got the the refueling rig complication and that kind of thing. So. It's very easy with hindsight to say this should have been the case, and it's difficult at circuit like Spa long. Conditions vary a little bit from one part of a track to another, so sometimes you're limited by the wettest part, and you might be okay on 70% of the lap, but then there's one bit that's just not quite right or dangerous. So easy to sort of criticise McLaren, but of course the real trick, and Mika will know this, is if you're the faster driver and you're ahead you don't have to worry about this because you get your priority. So that that's what I always think with drivers in that. Sometimes the second driver loses out, but don't be the second driver. That is absolutely correct. You know, that is true. And that that is the advantage exactly when you are fastest and when you're on a lead, you, you get this kind of privilege uh, from the team. That way they are looking your your performance and, and, and your best out of there. So, so David was suffering there. Good for him. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mika still leads the race after the pit stops and now everybody's on the slick tyres or the groove tyres. It's Mika and Michael Schumacher trading fastest laps at the front as they drive away from everybody else by at least a second per lap. Lacey was the next fastest man on track still and he's up to fourth thanks to his early stop, but his pace was a red herring because he's running very light on fuel. But it's on lap 13 that we have the moment that I'm sure Mika remembers very well because that's when you had the spin at Stavolo 
It's a half spin, but it costs you 10 seconds to Schumacher. So Michael goes from being four seconds behind you to six seconds ahead. So Mika, tell us, tell us what happened. You guys were both really on the limit at this point. Did you just step over it? Yeah, I, I was. I was very comfortable with the car, the balance of the car. Uh, it, it was just functioning really nicely. That it, it, it's a very tricky, you know. The, 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 when you are on, a sl- let's call it sl- slick tires, and and the circuit is still is getting dry. Uh, what the driver normally does is is you know every lap is quicker and quicker. Uh, of course, I know the pressure behind from the Michael getting closer, and and uh, so you have to all the time uh, to take more and more risks. Uh, and when you're sitting from one car so low, uh, it's impossible to see how quickly, particularly the curbs are drying up. The spa also is the place. The racetrack is in a built on the you know middle of the nature. So the humidity is really high, so it doesn't dry up very quickly. Uh, so the racing line is beautifully dry, but as soon as you go on a curb, uh, uh, these painted curbs can be really, really slippery. Again, the Spa racetrack is a place where you do use a lot of curbs. And, and when you use a lot of curbs, it's a big advantage for the lap time. So every lap you're using curbs a little bit more and a little bit more, thinking it's fine. And and that particular lap, uh, I I did use the curb a bit too much, and that that's it. You know, once you you realize you touch the curb too much and you lose the lose the control of the back end of the car, it's nothing what you can do. You know, you just you're just gonna you know you're just passenger, and and uh, when I realized that I'm losing a control and. The car goes sideways. I was just hoping that we're not going to hit any curb, uh, sorry, any 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 barrier, and and I was hoping that we I don't stall the engine. And of course, moment when the car stopped, I see the Michael coin yeah, flat out fast, and I was thinking, oh shit! <laughs> I said, oh my god, you know. Uh, and uh, and the only only solution is to get the car back on the track. And I was very lucky that there was no damage, and. And I start going flat out to start changing him and and uh, and taking taking care of the tires and and uh, but starting to you know just pushing and and the scene and 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 uh, of course looking to places at the track where I was quicker where he was quicker where I was able to push a little bit more so I knew there was still quite a few laps to go so I had a I had time. Yeah, and during the rest of this stint before your next pit stops, uh, Michael was had uh, six laps less of fuel, so he's able to pull away to up to ten seconds before the pit stops. When you were ahead of him, Mika, and then when you were chasing him, did you know at that point that he had less fuel, or did you think, man, he's he's so fast? Uh, we normally knew before the race what was the situation. We were very much aware, and and that was a very important factor for the driver to have a confidence uh, to know to know uh, why the driver who you're racing against is if he or if he's quicker or, or slow. So I was aware of very much what's going on, but still it was a surprise a little bit. You know, I knew that we're getting 
produce those seconds. It's not going to be just the, just the, you know, you have to really push. You have to really take some risks. Uh, and and once you have spun off already, you know, you your your adrenaline is really high. So your your reactions and everything was in a absolutely ultimate. You know. And interestingly, Michael's pushing really hard at this point as well. And already this early in the stint, he was going offline to cool his dry weather tyres on the wet patches. And this was partly because everybody had chosen the soft Bridgestone compound effectively as a qualifying tyre because the weather forecast for Sunday was so bad, so nobody expected to use it in the race. Schumacher said this tactic was key to helping him pull away once he'd passed you with the spin. But... Did it perhaps also hint that Ferrari was working its tyres too hard? And were you aware that he was doing it this early in the race? I was aware of that also. Uh, I was also aware that that uh, we we had different downforce figuration because I was I was just flying on a straight line. Uh, so I, I knew, and, and the mid-sector, the Michael was able to, because the tyres, and the downforce, he was able to to be really good in the mid sector. So I was aware of this, and I was all the time uh, balancing uh, my situation that I don't harm my tires, and the places where I was able to go really strong, I really focused and concentrate really hard to able to catch him as much as I can. And after Michael stops, uh, Mika obviously stays out for those extra six laps, and you're really pushing on them with the light fuel load. And the gap before the pit stops was 10 seconds. And after the pit stops, it's 7.7. So you made up some ground there. But Ed, given that Mika lost 10 seconds with the spin, and then he came out of the pits 7.7 behind Schumacher, so he made up some ground. If Mika hadn't fallen behind Michael with the spin, would this race have been really boring? Uh, Certainly more straightforward. I'm not sure it would have been boring. I don't think a Grand Prix at Spa can ever be boring, particularly with these types of cars. But yeah, well, Matt says it would have been certainly potentially a little bit more straightforward and perhaps we'd be talking about a different race uh, right now. Obviously, there's no lack of races in, in Mika's career that are interesting. So... Yeah, that, that spin certainly made things interesting. And obviously the fact that there was this slight offset with the fuel made it kind of even more interesting because it sort of ebbed and flowed a little bit more earlier on. But yeah, it certainly created the conditions for obviously the thing that this race is particularly remembered for, which we're going to get onto. And Schumacher has traffic when Mika comes out of the pits. So straight after the stops, the gap actually comes down to 5.8 seconds by lap 28 of 44 and from here, the gap really comes down. It's, it goes to five seconds, then 3.8, 3 3.1, 2.4, 2.2, 1.6, 1.3. And then on lap 36, it's one second. So with eight laps to go, it's definitely game on. And Mika, when you're catching Michael that quickly, what's going through your mind? Are you already convinced that you're going to win the race or are you more worried about how difficult he will be to overtake when you get there well i was i was aware where i was able to catch him and and like i mentioned earlier uh, i i did focus in those areas enormously and i remember the particular going to come into bus stop example uh I was really going flat out. I, I knew my braking performance was extremely good. Michael wasn't. He was not able to brake so late. He was not able to use the curbs as 
hard I was able to do. So when I was going through the bus stop, I was just flying over the curbs and and the, and those places I was able to re- catch him a lot. And I and I knew that that way the number of laps days days left, uh, I should be able to easily to overtake him on a straight line. Yeah, well, Michael did his best to not make it so easy, but as Mika said there. The downforce difference between the cars meant the McLaren was absolutely flying down the straights. Ferrari had tried low downforce earlier in the weekend, but it didn't work at Spa, so Schumacher decided to go high downforce. Martin Brundle on the commentary uh, said on lap 38 that Mika was running 10 kilometers an hour faster on the run to Le Coombe, so that was where the attack was expected. And on lap 40, Mika gets a run and makes his move and Schumacher famously moves over and keeps moving over until Mika has to choose either to lift off or take to the grass. Mika was never one for, shall we say, uh, histrionics and gesticulations in the car. But if you watch this footage back, there, an arm does go up in the air to perhaps show his dis- dissatisfaction. Now, Ed, before I ask Mika about this, as an observer watching on the TV, what did you make of the move that Michael did on the run to Lake Coombe? Yeah, it's one of those moves that over time had become a little bit more accepted, shall we say, which I don't really like because it's it's just the danger element, isn't it? Because it's one thing to be on the limit sportingly, that that's one thing, but when you think about what the potential consequences are, you either basically say the driver making the pass has to lift or they hit the back of the car or they go onto the grass and lose it and then who knows what happens or you get the worst case scenario, which is if you get a wheel-to-wheel contact then suddenly you've got a McLaren potentially flying into the trees, which doesn't doesn't bear thinking about. And I fear we probably wouldn't be speaking to Mika right now if that had happened. So it's very serious. But it had also started to just start to become a bit more acceptable. I think 15 years earlier, I think it, nobody would have argued it was in any way legitimate. But even looking back at the commentary, Martin Rundle, Mika's old teammate, said it was kind of on the edge, but just about legitimate. So it had just started to become considered to be acceptable and but these these kinds of moves on the straights are always really dangerous and it's the danger element that's key key to me I, I don't mind drivers being a bit extreme a bit ruthless in a sporting sense we'd say as long as it's safe I think a lot of drivers will do that but it, it's consequences that are, are huge and whenever we see drivers do that we've seen Roman Grosjean a couple of times do that this year at Silverstone for example slightly safer circuit this one was even more extreme the spa case but yeah, it's it's that outcome that I don't like, and so I imagine well, Mika will be able to put us in that position. But if you're a driver there, who not only have you been frustrated in trying to make a legitimate move, you've also been put in danger. It's the kind of thing that justifiably gets the driver who's the victim of the of the move worked up. But equally, you can say Schumacher knew he could get away with it, so maybe he was just willing to go to greater extremes than some drivers. But yeah, it it it's fine margins, and it's the kind of thing I, I don't really like to see. Yeah, it it is incredible. I tell you, you really are so pissed off. You know, when somebody does something like that, you are so pissed off. You know, the words what you are thinking in your head in that moment, they are something what you don't want to repeat. Uh, and 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 even to pushing a button and talk to radio to the team, it would not make a difference. But, you know, the frustration is enormous, not, not frustration because you're not allowed to overtake, but, but that understanding that how somebody can do that, 
because you have to, few laps later, to finish the Grand Prix, you have to face this other person, you have to face the TV, you have to face the fans, and, and you have to explain your act. And, and when you are on those speeds on a racetrack, and you are doing such an act when you are really pushing somebody on a, on a cross in, in that high speed, there is no way you can look somebody in the eyes and say, you know, well, I didn't really mean to do that. It was just my steering accidentally turned that direction, you know. So there's no excuse. There's no way you can go around it. It's a purposely done, very nasty move. And when you think about the fans looking at the TV, reading magazines, and 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 supporting a driver, it automatically makes you think that, hey, hold on a second, how somebody can do that? I'm supporting this driver to be a great racing driver, but when we are going over 300 kilometers per hour, and you're pushing your racing colleague to go on the cross, this is not anymore, you know, this is something that if something goes wrong, uh, it's going to be a really, really seriously fatal accident. It can happen really something bad. So I, I, that's, you know, what goes in your head when you are racing that moment, it's, it's incredible. And, and uh, you get so upset, but, but, uh, simply because I've been racing so many years, I've been going through so many different situations. Uh, this motion comes in your mind, it stays there for a few seconds, and then you switch back again for the racing mode and, and start looking for new possibilities to able to overtake Michael. Because I knew that this is what he's going to do the rest of the laps, this is the only place where I'm able to overtake him, and he, and he knows that. So he will do anything to, to stop me to, to overtake him. So uh, I really wonder if this uh, situation with the back marker, if this never would have happened, what really would have happened? I think I would have get so pissed off, and I tell you, something, something weird would have happened. But luckily it did not, so... <laughs> <laughs> you know, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can all be thankful for Ricardo Zonta, who we'll come to in a moment. As you said, Mika, you had to you had to get that frustration out of your head and then start the chase again because you knew that in a lapsed time you would have another chance to attack Michael. And you said that you, you work very closely with McLaren still and you spoke to the McLaren website about this in twenty fifteen. And you said that you knew you had to go flat out up Eau Rouge, which wasn't easily done in those days, certainly not in race trim. And you, you told McLaren uh, in 2015 that you decided you would count to three up Eau Rouge uh, and keep your foot flat. And you said, I knew by the time I got to three, I would either have taken Eau Rouge flat or I would be in the barriers I'd have to be millimeter perfect. Is that story true? It is a lot of true there. I tell you what, I had a, I had a, I give you other example, not about the spa. I give you other example in Monza example when I did the, we did so much testing there, and and uh, once we had a 
four days testing in, in Monza and, and it was psychologically so demanding because it's a, such a high, high speed circuit. The braking has to happen absolutely spot on in the right place because when you enter in the corner, you are like 350 kilometers per hour. So the braking has to be really spot on. And after four days, you know, after three and a half days, you were so, so tired, so knackered that uh, your muscles getting exhausted, your, your mind getting exhausted. So when you go to breaking point, uh, the moment when, you're, when your head yet, your brain said that when Mika corner breaks, I was counting three because it was the only way that way me to able to break in the right place. And it was crazy. I mean, your, all your fear of your body, your mind telling Mika, you have to break. And then he just says, shit, country, country. <laughs> so, so it was a very, it was a very similar situation in Spa that a rouge corner uh, with the race configuration, uh, it, it, it was impossible with the high fuel because the car would it would touch the ground so much that way it would slow you down. Not necessarily take you off the track, but it would slow you down. So, so of course, in the race, the fuel was getting low, uh, the car was getting lighter. Uh, so this was possible to, to really maximize your speed through there. And, and the only negative side of it was the tire, the car itself was already quite tired after all that long race. The tires were quite worn out, so the grip level wasn't any more perfect. But of course, the wooden plank what we had under the car was already worn out a little bit. So there was a lot of elements which, which indicated that way it is possible to flat, but it's, 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 it's risky like hell. But I knew I had to take that risk able to overtake Michael. So, so I, was, I was keeping my foot down, going downhill, getting towards the roost. And, and my, my brain says that way, God damn it, if I don't go flat, I'm not able to overtake Michael. So I was thinking, getting close to the bottom of the hill, and you know, the speed, I don't know what it was. I'm, I'm, it has to be like 300 on the bottom of the roofs. And it is a shit quick speed. It's terrible, you know, because it's not just holding a steering straight. You have, to, you have to take a special line to be able to go flat. That means uh, bottom of the roofs on the left-hand side, you have a curve. And, and the more you run over that curb, more it gives you stress for the tires and suspension. So what happens is when you hit the curb very hard, the car actually goes lower than it should. So less you touch the curb, less problem it is. But this time I knew to, 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 to grip of the tires what I had left, I need to run over the curb a lot to able to get as a straight line as possible going through that corner. And, and uh, did I count three there? To be honest, I'm not, <laughs> not any more sure if I did, God damn it. But, <laughs> but, uh, but the moment when I was, when I was going to that, that moment when, when I touched the curb and I felt the massive load on the steering, I was just uh, holding my foot down and, and, and this load in the steering was 
my all the time giving me messages where I am. Can I go flat? Because if the load gets so heavy that even it's physically hard to able to keep it straight, you know, uh, that means anything can happen. You know, you can lose the front end suddenly, you can lose the rear end suddenly. And, and if that happens, it's nothing what you can do. So this load was all the time like an indicator. So it comes to the point on the steering that it, it's physically so demanding that way something soon something going to happen. So when I was going through a ruse and I was in the middle of the ruse going uphill, the loads were massive. And, and then in that moment, I let it go a little bit. I let the steering to go a little bit. Uh, taking a little risk because the moment when you come top of the roof, there is still a little corner. And you cannot, if you run over that curb too much on the top of the roof, you can again lose the balance of the car and you can you can crash. So I let it go just a little bit. And as soon as when I realized everything is fine, I start putting my mind to focus, overtaking Michael. But that moment when I was going to ruse, I didn't care nothing what was happening in front of me or behind. It was just living that moment, you know. Yeah, breaking it down individually. But you achieved the goal, which was to take it flat out. And you said at the time that when you came out of Radion, you could tell that Michael hadn't taken it flat. So you knew you had a massive run on him. Up ahead, as we mentioned earlier, you were closing on the BAR of Zonta. Ferrari had told Michael, of course, that he was much slower than you on the straights, but Schumacher hoped that on that lap, the toe from Zonta would help him protect the lead for another lap. Zonta's driving down the middle of the road, and at this point, he's unaware that there are two cars behind him. Schumacher assumed there would only be room for two cars side by side, so he thought again that he would be safe. Uh, but at this point, Mikael, what's going through your mind? Because... From what the research I've been doing, apparently you'd already decided that whatever Michael did, you would do the opposite. Now, Ron Dennis called this one of the greatest overtakes of all time. So tell us how you did it. Well, uh, it was common sense that uh, when when I saw the back marker, uh, I, Michael was automatically trying to get the toe, but the Sonda was going a little bit too slow. So because he was going so slow, Michael didn't really get the good advantage out of that. Also, the track was, from the left-hand side, was quite dry and inside line was quite wet. So running on a wet, obviously, it creates a drag. Uh, so it's not too good to run there too much if you don't have a problem with the tyres. I would have been very surprised if the Michael would have taken inside line and go on the wet side because obviously he kind of breaks so late uh, and it would give me opportunity to go on a try side. So I was psychologically preparing myself already that way Michael will pass the Zonda on the left-hand side. So I was, I was, if Michael would have decided to go on the right and, and, and me psychologically prepared to go also from the right, I think it would have been a mega... It would be a quite a it would be a quite a mess going in that corner. I tell you, and and uh, and uh, luckily, luckily Michael decided to go from the left hand side, and so it opened me to 
follow the sound a little bit, even it was not the mega advantage, and then to pass him in the right hand side, and and to go to the corner, to to see to see exactly what's going to happen. But but it was quite an aggressive move from me to immediately come towards the Michael because that was the only place on a racetrack which was a try line. So I was not able to stay inside. Otherwise, I would have break my wheel tires and go wide. So I had to come very close to Michael. And I think that that point, the Michael realized, oh, shit, that's it. I lost the game. <laughs> <laughs> Let's quickly look at Zonta's perspective. It's the moment he's most famous for in F1, I would argue. And I think everyone is relieved that he held his nerve and stayed in the middle of the road and kept going straight. Looking back at it, Zonta said, I looked in the mirrors and saw Schumacher coming up behind me like a rocket. I was about to give him room when I spotted the tip of the McLaren's nose just behind him. I held my line and I held my breath. I don't like to think what might have happened if I'd moved one inch either way. I knew that either side of me I had the two drivers who were fighting for the world title. Ed, does Zonta perhaps deserve some credit for for holding his nerve here and, and staying in the middle of the road where he did? Yeah, 100%. He knew at the point he registered Hackerdam was there as well that he wasn't in the right place. But once you're there, you can't undo it. And he realised very, very quickly. And he's a driver who, in other categories, was used to being at the front. So he knew what it was like. So he had to immediately recognise that he just had to hold that that firm line. Because the last thing that those two drivers chasing him and about to pass him want is for him to introduce some random factor and move. So he just knew... Don't change what he's doing. Stay in a steady state and let the other two sort it out. So that was a a good move. And I think some lesser drivers, I think we've certainly seen some drivers in Formula One who as bat markers would have made a bit of a panic measure and just sort of thought, oh, I've got to be completely out of the way. And it would have just been too late to, to make that move. So credit to him for evaluating that situation quickly and also for being aware enough because visibility even in those days behind wasn't brilliant. So I think he deserves huge credit for that. And also... If he hadn't been there, this wouldn't have created perhaps what we were talking about today. Who knows whether Hacken would have made the pass? Mika himself suspects he might not have been able to, given Schumacher's robust defence. So I think we should all be thanking Zonta not only for doing things right, but also for his his contribution to history. It was probably his biggest contribution to Formula One, actually, which is a little bit of a shame because he was a fine driver, but it never quite worked out for him. But at least there's one little bit, little mark he's made in, in Grand Prix history. Well, you do obviously go on to win the race. Uh, Michael dives around in your mirrors for a few corners after the pass. But Mika, you've you've said uh, on your own podcast, you've since said that you actually deliberately took it easy for a few corners to maybe give Michael some false hope. Yeah, I mean, the moment when I when I realised that's it, I'm 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 now safe. Uh, I can choose line what I want. I was just lot of stabilizing my heart rate basically uh, uh, and 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 like double checking that way the car is fine the tires are fine because remember I was running on a wet part of the track so my grip, grip level uh, uh, and the dirt part of the track so my grip level of the tires was not ultimate so I really had to make sure that way whatever line I'm taking uh, whatever speed I'm going that way i I cannot make slightest mistake. If I make a slightest mistake on a, on a racing line, it gives the opportunity to Michael attack. So I went a little bit slower than I need to, just 
making sure that way I'm not making a mistake. And I knew same time that when I'm going these corners to Michael, corner you cannot overtake. You cannot overtake in a corner. And also the outside part of the track was wet. So Michael never could have even tried to go outside. And 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 uh, so I was taking it safely. Uh, and at the same time, I was just enjoying It's true, seeing a Michael in the mirror, you know. And I can imagine how he was thinking there. I said, you finish. You know, it was fantastic feeling, man. <laughs> and obviously, straight after the race, we have a moment that is almost as famous as the overtake itself. And that's the conversation Mika has with Schumacher in Park Ferme. For those of us not involved watching from the outside, it looked like a very deep conversation. Mika famously using his hands to replay Schumacher's block and explain, as you did earlier, why you were so unhappy. And obviously at the time, Mika, and for many years, uh, you never told anyone about that conversation in public. And Michael was asked about it afterwards. And he said, Mika just explained to me that my manoeuvre was rather tough for his taste. In recent years, in interviews, Mika, you have started to talk about this conversation. You told us earlier how angry you were when he made the block on you. So what did you say to Michael? Did you just give him the explanation, the same explanation about how that's unacceptable? Well, I had an incident with Michael in year 1990. So many years ago. And, and we were racing together in a category called Formula 3. We were racing in Macau. Uh, and and uh, this, this uh, Macau Grand Prix, what it's called, it's like a world championship race of Formula, Formula 3 drivers who are coming all the, all the places in the world, the champions of, of that category, gathering the Macau to see in the, who the really the best one is. And, and this Macau Grand Prix, you have a two racing uh, two races basically in the same weekend and and two race starts and and those two race starts uh, they're calculating the average time and the time to, the driver who has the best time be able to be a winner so i won the first heat uh about two to three seconds and and the second start uh I made a slight mistake in the start or something, and Michael got the lead. So I was all the time behind the Michael about a couple of seconds. So me, the just the finished behind the Michael uh, in that year, 1990, with F3, I could be a winner of the overall of the race. So very last lap, uh, following Michael, about two seconds. So I knew if I'm, this is the distance, I'm going to be a champion of this race. So... Starting the last lap, the Michael did make a mistake, very, very strange mistake, and and uh, and and the mistake happened just for the start of the start of the long straight. So his straight line speed was ridiculously slow, like in Spa, example. So I followed Michael very closely, and then I decided to overtake Michael in Macau in 1990. And same when I did that, Michael looked in his mirror. And he turned the steering and he moved his car straight front of me. And I crashed massively, hitting barriers in 250 kilometers per hour. In 1990, in a Formula 3 car, 
which was definitely not the safest car in the planet. So years came out, massive disappointment, and game was over. So Spa, years later, so after the Grand Prix, I went to see Michael to explaining to him that this is too much. You are playing with the people's life. And you cannot do this. You know, if I would have touched you and go off the barrier, I would have get really badly hurt. And I had a bad accident in 95 in Formula 1 when I cracked my skull. So I don't want to feel that again. So I didn't want to go further and I didn't want to start raving about this in a, too much in public because that was his way of racing. And in one sense, it's okay. As long as you're aware of that, everything is okay. But if you're not aware of that and you're racing against him, accident will happen. So that's what I was chatting with him and talking to him. And and I, I, I think... Uh, these things uh, were right thing to do. And I think Michael respected that way I come to talk to him about it. That way I didn't turn my back and start talking to publicly about it. Uh, but it was his personality. He had a lot of good qualities, but he has also qualities like that which were a bit, <laughs> sometimes a bit risky, I tell you. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen somewhere that uh, you said that when you explained this to Michael in great detail and when you started the conversation, the first thing he said to you was, what did I do wrong? Did that, did that tell us something about how, how his brain worked in a racing situation? Well, you can always follow the rule book uh, and, and make a one maneuver to block the other driver. But what is very important is the timing for that. Because if somebody's coming 10 kilometers per hour faster behind, when the circuit is a bit wet, the water is spraying for the other car, uh, the circuit is narrow. There is, there is. Uh, uh, sometimes the common sense has to be more logical than just following the rule book. How far you can go on a risk level. So you need to think something. And and uh, and I th- I felt that way now because I was so much quicker. Michael knew that way. I will I will kick his ass sooner or later. I will overtake him. So he knew that. So that's why this kind of desperate blocking maneuvers, my opinion, was not worthwhile to risk in people's lives. And after you have the discussion, you go you go onto the podium, you do the press conference. The press conference is is quite funny to watch back, actually. Uh, Mika explains to the media that he had to use the Zonta opportunity because, and this is what you said at the time, there's no point to follow Michael and try to overtake him at the end of the straight because he's not going to give me room. Then you look across at Michael and you say, correct. And Michael gives uh, half a smile and nods in agreement. Uh, Mika finishes the press conference by saying, I loved it. I'm not sure if Michael did. And you can hear Michael off camera saying, no, no, it was nice. Um, on the podium afterwards, Schumacher had looked like you know a beaten man. He looked, he looked crushed. So I don't think he was quite up for having a joke about it in front of the TV cameras. Now, there's a very good book about Michael uh, by James Allen called The Edge of Greatness. And in that, Michael's manager, Sabine Kame, said that Michael had been tense all summer during 2000 and that by this point of the season, there was a feeling of this cannot happen again. The fear was growing in him that this would not work out. The pressure was extremely high. 
I do not know what would have happened if he had not won the title that year. Mika, you were obviously enjoying the victory on the podium. Could you detect how how disappointed and how dejected Michael was? And did you get a feeling that he found this defeat very hard to take? Uh, no, I I felt that uh, they had a they had a great advantage, uh, and that was the reliability. You know, they had a okay, they had a good team, they had a good package. Uh, they had a reliability. They were scoring points, and 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 we were in a position that we were really fragile. Uh, and and that I I was I was unfortunately I was I was confident in my mind they are going all the time in the right direction, uh, and they are developing better and better car all the time. They had a strength in some areas in a racetrack which was a big mystery, you know. doesn't matter what kind of geometry we created, back end of the car, uh, whatever rising rate, whatever suspension, whatever aerodynamic package, whatever weight balance in a car, uh, doesn't matter what we created. They were always they were better in certain parts on a racetrack, able to accelerate that car very quickly out of the corners. And it was a mystery. And, it, and that, that was really that was really uh, difficult to to accept because uh, we had very smart people working on a team. We had all the technology, and and why we couldn't figure it out, it was a mystery. Uh, maybe they had something illegal. <laughs> That's what I was hoping, in one sense. But uh, uh, it, it was, and and doing that. Uh, that way they had this kind of strength in their car. Uh, I saw that way, if we cannot fix our car in the same level, sooner or later we're going to be in trouble. Yeah, and that's how that's how the season played out. But that's a story for another time. Mika, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and to revisit one of your, your greatest victories. There's no better insight than hearing these stories from the man himself. So it's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us. I'm sure this won't be the last time in our series that we look back at some memorable moments from your career. So next time we do a Mika Hakkinen episode, which race do you think we should choose? Oh my God, there's a many. Anyway, guys, I've really enjoyed. Thank you for this. There's a many, many Grand Prix, many, many great uh, 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 racing situations from not only Formula 1, some other categories also. But uh, when I'm looking back, all the Grand Prix in my in my uh, history, uh, there was many challenges, beautiful challenges. Silverstone, I had a great races with the team Lotus, uh, uh, McLaren. I had fantastic uh, Grand Prix uh, many times. It's just funny, crazy incidents and. Amazing arguments with the engineers. I had a, such a good time. You know, they were, I mean, I always remember the engineers. They were nearly kicking me out of the meeting office. You know, they were getting so pissed off with me. You know, it was fantastic, I tell you. But they, it was a positive argument because when you are a racing driver and you want to win, you 
want to know. You want to know the answer. There is never ever a situation when you are building a racing car and you're developing a racing car that there has to be a proper analyze and logic behind whatever move you do during the setup of the car. There always has to be a logic behind and the answer why. And, and we had some beautiful arguments. And, and I think all these arguments led for a position that way we were able to win races and winning a world championship. So there's a plenty of but, stories, man. Yeah, so many to choose from. And next time, next time we pick one, we'll, we'll let you know and we'll have to have you back to hear some more of those arguments. <laughs> Well, that might just be my personal highlight of Bring Back V10s so far. Hopefully the beauty of our format here is that we're not completely reliant on star guests to have some fun looking back at these stories in great depth. But when you get the chance to be joined by a two-time Formula One world champion, he's willing to discuss one of his greatest moments in that much detail. I am blown away by that. It was absolutely brilliant. At this point, I'd like to say a big thank you to Unibet, which hosts Mika's regular podcast, that's called Inside F1 with Mika Hakkinen and is well worth a listen if you want to hear Mika's take on F1 matters old and new on a more regular basis. So go and check out Mika's own podcast and you can hear more stories like we heard there. And uh, I'm sure you'd all agree he's a fascinating listen. And Ed, to be honest, while we had Mika with us, I didn't really want either of us to have to speak that much because I could listen to him tell stories all day. Yeah, he's just one of those people, isn't he? He really gets into detail and thinks about it and and offers more than just the usual kind of sound bites about things, which uh, is exactly why I've just actually just subscribed to his podcast. So uh, that's that's encouraging. I know I shouldn't, uh, shouldn't say I listen to any other podcast, of course, other than Bring Back V10s. I wondered what you were doing. It looked like you weren't listening to me. And I was thinking, I hope he's going to come in here when I finish talking. I didn't realise you were subscribing to Mika's podcast. Yeah, I did genuinely have my phone in my hand doing that. Because if I don't remember to do it, I'll uh, I'll never remember. But yeah, <laughs> just just great for, uh, for, for having that level of, uh, of insight. Yeah, it's great that Mick is that, that engaged with it as well. And um, we said to him before that recording, uh, how much time do you have? And he said, as much time as you need. He was really up for it and, and uh, it, was, it was really good fun. So thank you so much to Mika. There's not too much point in us sticking around for too long here because what else could we add to the story when the man himself has just told us everything in so much great detail? But there is one point I want to pick up on before we go, and that's about Mika talking about how he dealt with Schumacher at the time. Ed, do you think that the fact that Hakkinen made a point of having this firm conversation with Schumacher but then didn't make a thing of it in public is perhaps one of the reasons we always heard, didn't we, that Schumacher perhaps respected Hakkinen more than some of his other rivals? Yeah, I think probably the primary reason was actually down to respect for how good Mika was. As Mika talked about, their rivalry went back some time to to pre-F1 days. Mika was a brilliant driver and someone like Schumacher knew when he was up against someone of, of that calibre. But as a secondary thing, I think the way Hakkinen dealt with it was brilliant because firstly, it was a conversation Schumacher couldn't escape. 
Mika was calm, precise, said what he wanted to, and then underlined it in other little ways. He didn't go shooting his mouth off, start an argument, etc., because then it's just easy for you just to fob him off and and say no. And he probably dealt with it better than perhaps Damon Hill did. He, he sort of tried to do a similar sort of thing at Spa in 95 with Schumacher, but it just came over as a little bit more, more chippy. It was quite a similar situation, actually. So... I think that was just really good for Mika, just that car. It's sort of the the show you're really angry by being calm and sort of threatening. And then just the, you can see how much Schumacher's listening to him in that part, firm argument. Because to his credit, Michael is listening. He's not just fobbing him off. He's not sort of just saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that, that clearly made a point. And I think probably that, that played a secondary part. But fundamentally, I think in Hakkinen, Schumacher saw somebody who was either his equal or is near to being his equal as somebody with Schumacher's strength of confidence and brilliance could think anyone else could be. Yeah, it's almost impossible to imagine 20 years later a driver then in Hakkinen's position not then giving us loads of juicy sound bites to chew over and uh, I wonder how that incident would have been reported on today. But let's let's end it there then because, as I say, Mika handled everything brilliantly for us, just as he did back then, 20 years ago. This episode was initially meant to be our season opener, but when we realised there was a chance we could get Mika to join us, we pushed it towards the back end of this run, and I think we can all agree that was worth the wait. So thank you again to Mika for taking the time to join us, and thank you to Unibet, which produces Mika's regular Inside F1 with Mika Hakkinen podcast. Do make sure you check that feed out. I'm a regular listener to the show as well. And quite often, Mika takes a few fan questions there. So if there's something you wanted us to ask that we didn't get around to, you might get the chance to ask it on Mika's own podcast in the future. We're only a couple of weeks away now from our Ask Us Anything series finale. So remember to get your questions in on social media using the hashtag BringBackV10s. It can be anything about F1 from 1989 to 2005. As long as that hashtag is there, I promise you we'll see it. Next week, we have the last of our regular episodes for this series, and it's a subject that I can categorically declare to be our most requested episode topic. I won't go into any detail right now about it. All I will say is we've got two words for you, Indianapolis 2005.